You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Patrick Antonetti. This week, it is a familiar guest, James Andrew Miller. Jim Miller, the best-selling author of books on ESPN, CAA, Saturday Night Live. He has been a guest uh, on my podcast many, many times. And this week, we discuss the intersection of the NBA's China story and ESPN. And it has been a story that uh, has dominated sports media over the last uh, week or so. It's a story that's not going to go away anytime soon. And in ESPN's case, an incredibly tricky uh, incredibly tricky terrain to navigate, given that they are a league partner with the NBA. And I would argue that the sport is their second most important property other than the NFL. And there is no doubt, at least when it comes to sort of ESPN's digital arm and social media, you see how many ESPNers are into the NBA. And so Jim and I talk about where the story is now in relation to the media and specifically to ESPN, how ESPN has navigated that, why and whether ESPN employees feel uh, restricted about saying anything, who the people at ESPN who have been front-facing on this and who's been behind, whether this will ever appear on their main studio shows in terms of commentary versus reporting, and much more. We also get into the Sports Illustrated layoffs, as we did last week, and Jim's perspective on that I think is interesting. And then we close with... uh, a little bit on Uncut Gems, which Jim Miller saw at the New York Film Festival, the new Adam Sandler film, uh, which he plays a, uh, I think he plays a jeweler who gets involved with NBA gambling, Kevin Garnett in that as well. And Jim Miller loved this film. I mean, he is waving the flag for it. So it was enjoyable to talk to him about that. So Jim Miller is the guest on the Sports Media Podcast, and we'll start our conversation right now. All right, as I said at the top, uh, Jim Miller returns to this podcast. He's been a, I probably should have my research better. He's been a guest on this pod. If you sort of combine the Sports Illustrated one I did and this one, I mean, he's in double digits for sure. His most famous appearance on this podcast, of course, is when within the first 35 seconds of a podcast, he dropped uh, a gigantic F-bomb regarding Adnan Virk's, uh absurd dismissal. From ESPN, and Jim Miller joins us from, I believe, Jim, you're in California today, so you're getting up very early for me, and I appreciate that. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Is that it, Jim? I give you a big, long intro, and it's just a thanks for having me? I figured well, you were going to comment on the, the Adnan yeah. uh, F-bomb. I don't remember that. No, I'm just kidding. I try. You remember that. I mean, uh, ESPN was in a panic. It was like DEFCON 3, basically, in Bristol after Jim Miller drops an F-bomb. All right. Bad segue here, but we are going to be talking about ESPN and the NBA and China. Um, how do I sort of get into this? Listen, the NBA has to own its shit. And its first statement out of the gate regarding uh, Daryl Morey's uh, comments about Hong Kong was a disgrace. A total cap- capitulation of China. I think they threw Daryl Morey under the bus. Statesman- statements since then have been better, but they have not allowed the media to ask cues in China. Uh, Steve Kerr's 
statements have been disappointing on this, and I'm a big Steve Kerr admirer. Um, the story's not going to go away anytime soon. That's not exactly a great synopsis of everything, but if you're a sports fan or a sports media fan, you, you're, I'm sure you have followed everything that's gone on. So, Jim, let me start here with you. ESPN and the NBA are media partners, and not just media partners, I would say, Jim. The NBA is the second most important property, I think, in Bristol, unless you want to say the colleges are, and behind the NFL, of course. But they really are so intersected, I think, with the NBA because so many of their people love the NBA. It's really discussed a lot on ESPN social channels and and podcasts. So they're really, really connected. And so I just want to start off with you just as an overview of of how do they navigate this and, and what have you seen over the last week? Well, I think what we're seeing, or more importantly, what we're not seeing, is the result of a strategy that was put in place in, with particular force after Jimmy came on board as president, Jimmy Pitaro, because that separation of politics and sports that they desperately wanted, they had felt like uh, during the the woke years of the Obama administration and even a little bit after, uh, you know, that ESPN had become too political and they didn't want that image to be out there. And I think sometimes, you know, as I'm fond of saying, when the Lord wants to punish you, he answers your prayers because you get, you get boxed in. And so something happens that is of, of great interest to your to your viewers, and I think I think this is of real interest. I mean, not as much as the games or the players or stats or anything like that, but it's still part of the world of sports. And the repercussions for the NBA being in the Far East are are, are wide and deep. And so, as a result, I think there was a kind of hesitancy about how far you go with that. And you know, I think it brings up what we were talking about. During, during the past couple of years, which is how realistic and maybe how short-sighted this whole idea of drawing a line between sports and politics, politics is. Uh, I mean, we don't have to go back to the 36 Munich Games with Hitler and Jesse Owens or the 68 Olympic Games. Uh, I mean, John Branch wrote a very interesting piece over the weekend and talking about all the political elements that are out there right now, the NCAA Law in California, Rihanna in the Super Bowl, the Braves taking away the Tomahawks, I mean, the Doho track and field, it goes on and on and on. And the truth is that there's a big gray area between sports and politics, and that's part of the world of sports. If you're the worldwide leader in sports, to to turn your back on that and to say that we're not going to not only service our viewers in giving them context, perspective, opinions, certain facts, separating facts from fiction, but also we're going to deprive our employees who are theoretically and supposed to be interesting, well-informed, well-spoken people about the world of sports. I think that's, that's, that's kind of rough, and I think that it's been, it's been a very, very awkward dance. Um, you mentioned Steve Kerr. I'm less concerned about him than people uh, on ESPN who really don't know how far they can go. And by the way, right. that's an, I don't mean, I'll, I'll shut up in a second, but I just want to say that that's been part of the legacy of this whole sports slash politics separation as well, which is that 
you know, at Fox, you can go on and you can say anything. In fact, they, Fox Sports, I mean, they, they like their personalities and their sports people to kind of create some, you know, some narratives and, and get out there and say things that are provocative and stuff. At ESPN, there's a lot of people who, you know, worry every day about whether they went so far, are they allowed to say this, where is the line? And so it's been particularly tough. I think it's been, I think it's been tough on viewers because they haven't been able to, to get as much as they could have. And I think it's been tough on some of the people there who have, who have thoughts on this and who, you know, aside from Stephen A. Smith, aren't really allowed to talk about it. All right, that is you just you've made a really great point that I want to hit on a couple of different things. I think, and again, these are all very tricky topics, and there's no you're never going to satisfy your audience no matter what you do. You know, whether you're working at the Athletic, ESPN, New York Times, but the one thing that I think you hit on that I, I do want you to expand on is it does. I do get a sense that ESPNers do not know what the line is. For instance, very early on, Jim, if you remember. When the NBA sort of offered its initial statement, Keith Oberman, who essentially has not really done almost anything in terms of anything uh, political or anything with the nexus of sports and politics, he had a tweet where he went off on the NBA, uh, the owner of the Nets. Uh, I think he called the league statement smarmy, if I remember. So that was really eye-opening to me just because I hadn't really heard much from Oberman. I saw Stephen A. Smith, uh, Max Kellerman, I think Will Kane all make comments, and ESPN's public relations department would sort of, I think, point to that and say, we're not censoring our people. Look at our commentators. They're allowed to say what they want. But I feel then that like shows like The Jump have played it very, very straight, not much commentary, and maybe that's a case of them being in China. I haven't heard much from their basketball people, their sort of day-to-day basketball people. It feels like they've been very cautious or they've been told not to go down a certain road where you are correct. Fox Sports has people who are, you know, and I think it's part of their business strategy, just saying whatever they want. We know for sure that there there are going to be networks that take this issue and run with it. It's red meat for their viewers, although this is one that's probably crossing over both political aisles. So I, I Jim, I, I, I'm with you on this. I, 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 it's, it's hard to know. I think if you're an ESPN employer, how far you can go, I guess, unless you have like kind of Jordan rules, like Stephen A. Smith, where, you know, pretty much you can say anything without getting fired or disciplined or suspended, et cetera. Right. So I think the two operative questions are, first of all, as I mentioned, one, where is the line? And by the way, is management able to articulate the line? Because it's one thing to try and guess, but how, how, do they, how does the management even come out and, and say where the line is that you can't cross? And the second question, which I think is equally significant, because I've heard from people at ESPN about this, is, is it a level playing field amongst people on the air? Now, you know, so Stephen A. Smith, I get it. You know, he, he has, a, he has a, a larger margin of error than, than others. And they've made that decision, and he's about to, you know, sign a, a deal that's probably going to, you know, I mean, it, it will be without a doubt the biggest salary of anybody at ESPN, but it will be even, I think, bigger than people have been guessing. But my only point is, they, have, they don't have a clear line in terms of 
if you're a sports center anchor, so then are you just a reporter and you're not allowed to give opinions? I mean, that was part of the problem that what happened with SC6 with Jamel and Michael, and they were intruding on the sports center franchise. I get that. But here's the deal. There's 800, what, there's 8,760 hours in a year or something. ESPN's 24-7. Is there not an opportunity for ESPN to carve out even like the equivalent of a Sunday public affairs show or something where people at the network can give their opinion and can give some additional context that they might have because they are so deeply entrenched in this world. I think that it's, it's, it's so, it, they've made it so binary that it's, it's become, I think, unmanageable. And I understand why they wanted to do what they did. And I, I still think it was an overreaction to some of the criticism. Um, and it also, was a, it also was a result of a lot of people on the left at ESPN speaking up. And ESPN employees who were on the right felt like they didn't want to be as public with their opinions. ESPN is a much more balanced place inside. But still, why does it have to be constructed like this? I think it's, this is a great week to show that this, um, this kind of division uh, is, is almost unmanageable. A couple things there. How much of this reticence from employees reading the tea leaves of management has to do with what we've seen over the last couple of years when people like Jamel Hill spoke out against the current administration and became not just a subject of praise and criticism in the sports world, but that crossed over into, for lack of a better phrase, popular culture. Yeah, listen, I think that there are people who are concerned about that. Like they don't want to get suspended. They don't want to get fired. They don't want to uh, all of a sudden not have the support of their management if they do speak out. So it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky thing. I mean, the one thing that I do that you do see with a lot of these uh, people at ESPN on the air is that they're used to giving opinions. A lot of them do it pretty well. That's why they're there, and they also know that uh, if they go into the fishbowl, I mean, Jamel's experience was a little extraordinary. You don't expect to say something on ESPN and then have the White House briefing room calling for your dismissal. But I think that people have gotten smarter and smarter about the repercussions of voicing their opinions. And, you know, look, Steve Kerr, I understand why you might be disappointed with him now, but Steve Kerr and Pop and other people who have a tendency sometimes to, um, particularly Steve with his Twitter account, talk about their personal views. You don't see the Warriors disowning him or separating themselves from him. There's, there's an opportunity where people at ESPN might be able to give their perspective on something, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the Walt Disney Company isn't endorsing that. I mean, well, Jim, let me, I'm, yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, th- I want to just sort of focus on this because um, this hits on Disney. First of all, just sort of just point out for point of order that Jamel Hill's comments about Donald Trump on Twitter as opposed to on air. But how much of this, Jim, do you think, whether said implicitly or just sort of filtering down if you work there, has to not do with ESPN, but has to do with Disney? Um, read in the New York Times this week, Disney earned more than $600 million from Chinese moviegoers who watched Avengers Endgame. Disney is a massive, massive player in China. And so if you're just some you know, host of uh, ESPN 
radio show or if you're uh, some some around the horn panelist, is that factoring in your head? Like if I say anything about Hong Kong or something like that, I mean, I at the end of the day, my mortgage is being paid by this company with billions of dollars of investment in China. Well, look, I mean, ESPN happens to be the four initials that are on the screen, but ESPN is a Disney company. ESPN, people at ESPN are working for Disney. They're not just working for ESPN. Um, and dating back to, I mean, you know, one of the things that I had fun with in the book was talking about playmakers when ESPN put playmakers on. Uh, ESPN. Uh, I mean, the head of programming was all for it, and uh, it became an issue for Disney. It, this is this is about Disney. This is, and it's not to say that Disney is doing something wrong. It's just that whether or not there can be part of the ESPN program programming and or expressions for ESPN personalities, where it doesn't have to necessarily be a reflection of what Disney thinks. Now, something like the jump is inextricably linked with the league, and. You're, the jump is just not the place. I mean, that's that's just not going to happen. Um, we have to be realistic about it. But what my only point is is that there should be an opportunity, either on individuals' Twitter feeds, where you know the opinions expressed are those of myself and not of ESPN and not of our parent company Disney. There should be at least a show where smart people can get on and say things that are reflective of their own opinions, orthodoxies, and, uh, and values. And there should be a show where ESPN delivers to the audience a smart, smart look at what is fact and what is fiction with some great opinion attached to it. That's, that's not a lot to ask. Well, let me sort of play counter or play, I hate devil's argument, that, that expression. But So let me, let me sort of offer a counter, counter perspective here. If the jump is your primary NBA show, if you are pitching the jump as your intellectually sound NBA show, which ESPN has done, if you're pitching Rachel Nichols as the face of your NBA coverage, which clearly ESPN management and ESPN PR has done, why on earth would that not be the show to have this discussion? I understand, Jim, the business ramifications. That's the show most connected to the NBA. But, I mean, if that's your smart NBA show... Isn't that where this discussion should be had? No, because I think that, look, I'm not being a corporate apologist here, but I think if you're, if you're the league and you're in business with, with someone and you're having a, a show like, like The Jump that's the flagship show representing, you know, the, the league's product, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe. I mean, it depends, you know, how wild they want to get, but I don't think that that's particularly realistic. I think that the NBA has to do what what they need to do in order to protect their brand on a show like that. Um, that's not to say that everybody has to has to like conform to some big corporate line. But look, if you were if you're not aware of the fact, uh, I mean, I know you are, but even just the hosting on on a show like The Jump, um, there was a there's been a for the last couple of years there have been huge internal struggles inside. ESPN about who's going to be on that NBA set. And let me tell you, there are executives who dislike certain people, and they have been overruled by people at Disney, by people at the league, and ultimately, um, you know, by, well, in the most recent years, and by Jimmy, because that shows, and it is, it's not an extension of the league, but it is, 
it's definitely, you know, the, the calling card. So I'm just trying to think about what's realistic. And, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be on that, on that show, but there should be time for it. Listen, I get what you're saying, but all you're in, at the end of the day, what you're telling me is NB, the NBA is running ESPN's NBA programming and not ESPN. I'm not saying you're wrong, but think about that. Well, it's now not. I get look, it. I mean, David Stern used to call up and. and well, I, listen, and, I, I get it. And the, NFL, and the NFL is not going to green. I mean, the, the networks can say at the end of the day they choose the NFL announcers. We all know there's not ever going to be an NFL announcer calling NFL games without the green light of the NFL. So I get it. I mean, it's a partnership. I mean, it's, you know, you buy the rights, but you're in, you also have to be a good partner and you have to work with them. And I don't, listen, I don't think that's bad. I think that, you know, if, if you were, if you were Roger Goodell or Adam Silver and you're giving your product to, you're selling your product, even though somebody's paying for it, you still care about it. I mean, I don't think Adam is as intensely involved on micro levels as David Stern used to be. Um, but, but the point is that, you, you have a vested interest, and you want to make sure that your product comes off a certain way. But that shouldn't be for 24-7, and that shouldn't mean that then you get to operate as this, you know, totally Orwellian dictatorship over everything that gets said about the product, uh, you know, at any point on the air. Well, of course you don't. You, of course you agree. You're a business school guy. You're a B-school grad. You wear a suit. Of course you love this. <laughs> All right. The... Um... Jim, it's so early in the morning, you're not even enjoying my humor. It's, it's I'm laughing, I'm laughing, I'm laughing. Are you laughing on the inside. All right, so where does, um, you know, I think both of us uh, sort of have lived long enough, Jim, to know that this story's not going away. The rec- You know, Kawhi Leonard uh, <laughs> going down the court or, you know, Pascal Siakam dunking or LeBron James to Anthony Davis, like, that's great, and I'm going to watch because I love the NBA, but this, this China story is not going anywhere, and I think we'll be staying with them for much of the season. Listen, there's a really cool piece in the, in the Wall Street Journal about the 2004 um, uh, Super Bowl and about China. And, 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 you know, the Chinese play for keeps, and, and we yep. have to remember that. And, you know, everybody got kind of uh, distracted by the Justin Timberlake, Janet Jackson thing. But the truth is that at that time, the NFL was trying to secure a better partnership with China. There were like 300 million eyeballs up for grabs, and they did this montage about the world, and in one image was that lone figure in front of the tank at Tiananmen Square, and the Chinese got so pissed off about that, which was on the screen for like a nanosecond, that they hit the delete key. I mean, you, you know, you saw the pictures of the, the guy with the paint roller rolling over and covering up the Houston Rockets logo, right, right, you know, like within 24 hours of that tweet, and, and that's that's very, you know, that's very pronounced. This is that's not going to go away. They they understand it. So the only question is how everybody else deals with it. Yeah, thank God, by the way, for that photographer. I think his name is Jeff Widener, who took the famous Tank Man photo and was able to get it uh, onto the AP wire somehow, and the whole world saw that. All right, and speaking, you know, to sort of follow up what I was saying is because the, the, this story is going to exist for the entire year. If you're ESPN, how do you navigate it now? Because it's going to get back to the exact same thing you just said. Um, which commentators or which journalists or which reporters or which hosts can say something either on ESPN or their own social media fees, which can't. And then, as we know, there's also going to be bad faith actors out there who are going to take anything that an ESPN person says and turn it into ESPN 
thinks this, or this is how ESPN's company is. So I don't envy their task here because they always have a target on them because they're the biggest dogs on the block. They're the biggest partners of the NBA along with Turner. And so how do you think they navigate this? Because this is not, this won't go away this, uh, anytime soon. Well, not only, it's not this, it's not just this story. It's what I've been saying today is it's, it's always going to happen. Right. I mean, it's unrealistic approach. And I think that what they have to do is they have to, I really do believe that they have to let their people run free and say that they're not, they are not, their opinions are not reflective of ESPN or Disney. And, and they also have to be a little bit stronger in terms of not caving to outside voices who want to, you know, try and make them into a, uh, you know, a political network. They're a sports network. And even if somebody says something political on it, even if it's somebody on the quote unquote left, which sometimes those constructs don't even apply in these cases, um, you know, they have to be able to say that's nonsense and, and push back or ignore it. Last time agreed. They did. Why don't? But why don't I? I'm that you. You have just made pretty much the soundest argument I've ever heard. Why don't they do that? Why are they so afraid? I think they're they're worried about the the DNA of the ESPN brand, and I think that sometimes you can worry too much. Okay, and that's the truth. And Disney, as a you know. Disney is now launching this streaming service. There's a lot more intellectual property coming in. Not everything's going to be between the political 40-yard lines. And all you do is you, you say that we're a, uh, you know, a creative enterprise and people are coming and they're, they're producing and, they're, and we're showcasing lots of different storytelling, lots of different narratives, lots of different attitudes. And sometimes it's fiction and sometimes it's not. But, you know, ABC News has opinion show, uh, opinions. I mean, they're they're journalistic enterprise, but they're part of the Disney family, and there are there are people at ABC who can give opinions on things. And I think you, I think ESPN is just what they've done is they've gone way too far in the other direction, and as a result, they've made themselves unequal to the challenges of effective journalism in today's day. It's just there's just too much going on. You can't, you just can't keep it bottled up. Jim, Chris LaPlocky here. I'd like to talk to you about your comments on this podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Um, last uh, last one for me, and again, I realize you are not, you know, this is more in the world of the Austin Carps and the John Lewis's of Sports Media Watch and Sports TV Ratings, but do you have any sense, Jim? Do you, this is something I've been thinking about, I'll probably write about this soon. Do you think the China story will have any impact on NBA viewership. I, I'm always one who tends to believe that people are going to watch games because they love the games, and whatever's going on sort of outside the games, they may have their opinions on, but if they love the Warriors and they want to watch the Warriors, or they love the Sixers and they want to watch the Sixers, they're going to watch. But I don't know. I'm not, I, you know. I don't have all the answers, and maybe there are people who are like, the NBA's been incredibly disappointing here and I'm not going to watch. Do you have any sense of... I, I, How do you I, think the China story I intersects? I have yet to meet here? somebody who would 
think that or say that. I mean, if okay. they're out there, um, I mean, you know, 350 million Americans, maybe they're, they're, they're out there. I just can't imagine it. I think that there are things that get kind of um, whipped up in our smaller world of sports media in terms of, you know, I mean, look, Adam Sandler, Adam Silver is uh, is a well-regarded, well-liked guy. Everybody likes him. He's he's always been um, he's always accessible. He's very very smart, and I think that for a long time, people thought you know he was uh, just you know coded in Teflon. And this this was probably the first time in his stewardship where things got a little ruffled, but. You know that's that happens in those jobs, and I'm sure Adam is smart enough to realize that there are you know there are easy days and there are tough days, and he's he's smart enough to know how to deal with it. But um, I can't imagine. I mean, the product is the product. I don't think, particularly as something like you know so far on the opposite end of the world, I, I just I don't I don't see it. Yeah, listen, I think they've actually done a lot of smart things after the initial statement. Obviously, some dumb things as well, including not allowing people to. You know, the, the 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 scene with the CNN reporter that was handled by Rockets PR was bad. But, you know, they, they put out better statements. I think they, they're they not going to um, – I don't think they're going to prevent their players from talking at home once they're out of China. So we'll see. But you're right. I mean, this is probably the toughest thing Adam Silver's had to deal with in his commissionership. And he's been arguably the greatest sports commissioner of of the modern era, you know, to post two thousand. So it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting to watch that. Hey, stop what you're doing right now and look down at your left wrist. Because our friends at Movement Watches have got exactly what you're missing. Movement. They have you covered with tons of quality, clean, and all around good looking watches and accessories that we can actually afford and order right from our couch. Do your wrists and your wallet a favor. Go check out their minimalist designs that you can have with no risk because they offer free shipping and returns. With over 2 million watches sold worldwide, Movement has solidified themselves as one of the fastest growing watch brands out there. All right, listen, uh, let me sort of tell you about Movement in terms of a watch that I really love. They have a new watch called the Nitro Blue. Navy blue sunray dial, brushed silver steel, black leather, angular date windows, this is a seriously freaking beautiful watch. Go on the website and check this out. Nitro Blue. You can wear it with a suit. You can wear it with jeans and a nice t-shirt at the beach. Somebody takes a look at you in this watch, and they're going to be like, all right, here's a dude who knows exactly what the hell is going on. Nitro Blue. Movement also has tons of sunglasses, and they offer interchangeable watch straps, so you never run out of options for a new look. And again, this is basically the perfect gift for you if you want to treat yourself to something nice or for others. You know, we got uh, we have the holidays coming up very, very soon. This is an absolutely fabulous gift for somebody you really care about. Movement watches start at just $95, so you're guaranteed to find something you love that won't break your bank. These guys are truly a ground-up entrepreneurial success story. They understand living on a tight budget because they lived on one too. And that's why they wanted to make quality products that are accessible to everyone. They've sold over 2 million watches across the globe, more than 160 countries, and their collections are always expanding for you. All right, here, listen up. Get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmt.com slash Deitch. That's mvmt.com slash Deitch. 
and you'll see why movement keeps growing. Check out their expanding collection. Go to mvmt.com slash Deitch and join the movement today. Movement watches. Absolutely beautiful and stunning. Before we get out of here, I want to cover two more topics, Jim. Uh, you've written a lot about business and you've written a lot about media companies. Obviously, wrote the book on ESPN and this is a much bigger company than the one I'm about to mention. But I just wanted to get your sense of how you viewed these latest Sports Illustrated layoffs. Last week, I did a podcast with four Sports Illustrated, four of my former staffers who were laid off uh, last week as part of the, the Mavens um, gutting of, you know, at least a quarter of the staff. Um, the Maven is who sort of is in charge of ESPN's editorial operations now. It was Time Inc. They sold their magazines to Meredith. Meredith then sold Sports Illustrated to Authentic Brands Group. Authentic Brands Group then licensed out the editorial of Sports Illustrated to this company, the Maven. Maven has its own history, at least their management there, including um, uh, one of the guys sort of attempt to reshape the LA Times. There was essentially a newsroom revolt, and he got out of there. As I said on last week's podcast, Jim, as I've certainly said online, I have essentially no faith in Sports Illustrated's current management. Um, I do not believe they're going to be committed to journalism long term. Um, I, I don't see this objectively. I, I will be the first to admit that, given I worked at Sports Illustrated for a long time. You covered business and media for a long time. So one of when uh, when you agreed to come on today, I really wanted to just I'm just going to sort of let you run as long as you want. But, you know, how do you see this? And and, and what were your immediate reactions when you read about the, the Sports Illustrated news? Well, I mean, look, I think it it sucks on all levels. I mean, obviously, you think about you first think about the people who have lost their jobs, and that's just awful. And you hope that they find places elsewhere because you know a lot of them, particularly the ones that I've talked to, are incredibly talented, and they deserve to be working and doing what they want to do. Uh, you know, I think there's a nostalgia part of it too for people over you know, 35, 40, uh, the Sports Illustrated brand and even just the idea of when that, is, that you know, the printed issue used to come out every week. It was a really big deal. And it's one of those sad things where you think about brands that, you know, were so incredibly important and and powerful in the culture and you think they're never going to go away and then all of a sudden they start to to, to lose their importance and they're a smaller blip on the radar screen. And, and that's sad. And then you, there's a part of you that thinks, you know, I remember when Stanky, when AT&T took over and Stanky sent out a memo about Warner media. And I guess in the first line, maybe, you know, there's all these brands that came up along with the acquisition and it may have been in the first line or two that they mentioned bleacher report, which is pretty amazing for, Bleacher Report, but then you think about, you know, some of those other brands, and at that time, you know, Sports Illustrated wasn't ex- exactly lined up there in the, in the corporate hierarchy, but my only point is that you just wonder, there's also a part of you to think back, it was such a great, it was such a great brand, and why couldn't, you know, not to point fingers, but why couldn't Sports Illustrated have done what Bleacher Report did under 
the rubric of that great brand. You know, you, you look out and you see things like The Athletic or The Ringer or Bleacher Report, and you think, wait, you know, this whole digital transformation happened, and why couldn't Sports Illustrated be a part of that? That's, you know, I don't mean it as a critical thing. I think of it as just under, you know, this idea about there comes a point in a lot of companies' histories where it's adapt or die, particularly when what we've seen with with print. And, and I think that, you know, you look at what the Washington Post and the New York Times and other places, print enterprises have done in trying to make that judo move over to uh, over to digital and secure, you know, a significant, strong revenue base that protects their futures and people's jobs. And you just you just wonder, you know, there was a lot of a, a lot of uh, a lot of competition for Sports Illustrated in in recent years. But boy, oh boy, they had the strongest brand, and those two words meant so much. And you know, so much of their work was iconic. And uh, you know, I mean, look, I. I have no idea what the future holds for them, but I, I have a feeling that you're right. That you know, this is a, this is these are very very dark days, and it just you know, I, I guess the operative word for me is 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 sad, and I think there's a bit of frustration because you you need if you're sitting on top of that empire, you need to be able to understand how the world is changing, how people are interacting with your brand, how people are consuming your goods, and to see whether or not. There are things that you can do. I mean, it's there was never a case at Sports Illustrated where they didn't have the intellectual capital inside that building to do some of the things that some of these other places have done. There's no doubt about it. Nobody's going to convince me that. No offense, but somebody at Bleacher Report was, you know, just a, a better reporter or a better, uh, you know, a better writer or a better photographer than somebody doing something at Bleacher Report. No, it just that happens that the guys at Bleacher Report the people at Bleacher Report were able to understand something about how their, how an audience could consume sports content in a way that Sports Illustrated wasn't thinking about or wasn't willing to um, move to. And those decisions have repercussions. And, um, you know, it's just, it just kind of pisses you off and it certainly makes you sad. Yeah, listen, the, there is no doubt, and again, I lived it so I was there, that the position that Sports Illustrated finds itself in was that that course was charted long before this sale happened. That course was charted at Time Inc. People have written books on it, long magazine pieces on it, from the hubris of Time Inc. management to not investing smarter in digital to a million different mistakes that they made. Uh, you know, you could again, you could sort of. You go chapter and verse, and, and, and those of us who live that, certainly Monday morning quarterbacking can see that. What is, though, frustrating, Jim, is that Sports Illustrated was still doing a lot of really, really good work. It certainly had um, – um, it did not have the same standing in the marketplace as it had 20, 15 years ago. No one would argue that. But they were still doing good work. And when you claim that you're um, – you're interested in journalism and you're interested in retooling the organization. And the way you're going to do that is to lay off 20% of your staff, including, you know, some of the more young, talented sports writers. It's all BS. It's just not true. You're not interested in that at all, but you're absolutely right, Jim. I mean, there were, whether it was Bleacher Report or, um, you know, or other entities that 
you know, figured out how to sort of use the web to, or how to use digital to make sort of a ton of money and a ton of inroads and a ton of partnerships, uh, they end up surviving and we'll see what happens to Sports Illustrated. Even to the point, Jim, and, you know, obviously I'm self-serving, I work at The Athletic, but imagine if Sports Illustrated sort of just at the beginning of the digital revolution just said, you know what, we may lose some initial people, but we're going to charge $3 a month for you to read our content online. You know, if they were the first of the subscription entities. The fact is back then people would have would have probably paid. You, you know, Sports Illustrated is too important to your life. What's one of the largest, if not the largest, mergers in American history? AOL Time. Yeah, so what disaster. It's not like they hadn't heard of the Internet. That's right. I mean, yeah. that's, that's one don't, of the... Don't, don't, don't remind me of that, Jim. My, my, the, my, the, the stock options they promised us in 2000 are long oh, underwater. Oh, I, I understand. Swimming, it swimming, swimming with the Titanic right now, Jim. No, no, no. That, that, that was one of the, the great disasters of all time. I get it. But my only point is, it's just a tad ironic that... AOL was part of that equation, and You're basically, right. I mean, Steve Case was running the company, the guy who was, you know, running around telling everybody in the world that the future was digital. And so to kind of turn your back on that or to not plan for that future or to not want to spread your wings into that, I mean, again, I come back to this idea that everything that any of these places are doing, Sports Illustrated could have done with tremendous wind at their back because they had that brand awareness but they yep, decided yep. not to yeah the other thing too jim is and again this just would have been you know the lottery ticket time magazine found itself a billionaire benefactor somebody who wanted to be in media someone willing to invest in it sports illustrated didn't and you know the washington post did with jeff bezos and some other publications did not so that was you know that I'm not saying that's the healthiest for the market, but that's the Hail Mary I think a lot of these legacy media brands are hoping for, you know, is that somebody, a billionaire basically with it, with a journalistic bent or an editorial bent or a nostalgic bent comes along and, and sort of saves the day. Yeah, I just think if they had done more of what they could have done, then there would have been I more agree. people lined up. Yeah, for I mean, no doubt. Absolutely. I mean, it, at you know, at the end of the day, the, the the sale price is 110 million dollars, and at one point, you know, that was a 500 million dollar, you know, plus business. So no one would argue that. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver. It's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. All right, let's end with this. I saw a tweet from you, Jim. Yeah, as you're jumping, you're like Adnan Verk here with your movie reviews. You said you saw Uncut Gems at the New York Film Festival. I think that's what NYFF stands yep. for. You pr- you well, I mean, we all know you're you're Saturday Night Live, Mark. But you love and you love all these people from that show. You said that Adam uh, Sandberg's Adam Sandberg Adam Sam Andy Sandberg screwing that up. Adam Sandler's performance in Uncut Gems you feel is Oscar worthy. So tell me why you love this movie so much. I, I just I don't think Adam's ever been better. I mean the Sadiff brothers are incredibly talented. Um, 
it's a real old school kind of Sidney Lumet kind of movie. It's um, really cool. And Adam plays this uh, jeweler who happens to like to bet on sports. And by the way, I will say Kevin Garnett's in the movie. And How the is guy he? is incredible. He crushes it. Wow. He's like terrific. I mean, he's got, it's not like a silly, it's not like a silly, uh, you know, character he plays. It's a real, it's a, it's a real role. And he does such a great job. But Adam is, is fantastic. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I think he's got a shot at a nomination. It's, I mean, you know, there's a lot of competition this year, but um, he really, I thought he, I thought he poured everything he had into this role. And it's a different kind of Adam Sandler that people are going to so see. So Gar- Garnett, Garnett has a lot of lines, not just a cameo kind of thing. Oh yeah, yeah. No, he's 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 in he's in you know he's in a, a multitude of scenes, and he's like he's really good. And yeah. he was. Um, he was on screen after they did a Q&A, and I got to tell you, the guy was, like, so humble and uh, incredibly likable, and he's just, you, you just want to root for him. I mean, he really, he, he was really amazing on stage, so well-spoken. I mean, not that, you, not that you would imagine otherwise, but, you know, it's just probably, I don't know if that was his first time being at a film festival and talking about his performance in a movie afterwards, and he just crushed it. Yeah, Garnett is very charismatic uh, and has it. So here's the thing with this. This is where, this will be the last thing, and then we'll get out of here on this. You want to talk about an eclectic cast. So you have Adam Sandler basically sort of, you know, playing dramatic role. Kevin Garnett playing himself. Then you go Adina Menzel, who's a massive, massive star, I think as Sandler's wife. Eric Bogosian is in this. Judd Hirsch, talk about old school. The Weeknd. And then Mike Francesa, I think, is a bookie, right? Yeah, he plays a bookie. And I saw the, you know, they, they tweeted out the trailer. Francesa made the trailer. And he says something to the effect of, that's a fucking terrible bet, uh, Howard, or whatever. Like, it's, I, I have to be honest, like, you watch that trailer and you're like, all right, I don't know exactly what this film is, but I kind of want to see it. Oh, yeah, it's, it's worthwhile. It's a it's yeah. it's very it's very well done. I I will say I think the only issue I really could think of is the music in the first ten minutes makes you um, want to get into the editing room and and re-record the the, the track the, the the music. But other than that, I mean that's just me being you know uh, you being a, very New York film though, right? These guys make New York films. Oh, these, these terrific! They're just they're enormously yeah. talented, and they're the kind of guys too that you just you just want to root for them. And uh, you're so high. It took him 10 years to make this movie. And nice. uh, it, was, it was worth the wait. Yeah, these, I'm looking at their, uh, their wiki here. They, they spent their childhood living between their father in Queens and their mom and stepfather in Manhattan. But their, their, uh, you know, their, their previous films, I know, have sort of a New York bent. And just again, from the trailer of Uncut Gems, like the, you could, they, that thing just like feels like. New York feels like Manhattan, and I I, uh, I give yeah, them a the lot bear, of credit for the that. The verisimilitude throughout the entire movie is just off the charts keen. Yeah, that's cool. And when you could do that in a trailer, to me, that's really impressive. All right, Jim, is there anything else you want to cover before I get you out of here? You've been I'm gen- all good. very generous I'm, with your time this morning. No, I'm all good. Thanks for having me. You want to pr- anything you want to promote? You got any origin stuff coming up or anything like that? Um, we got yeah, we got some origins chapters coming out. Um, uh, I'm working away at those and uh, 
they'll be uh, we'll be able to talk about them very soon. You got any books, screenplays, working uh, on DVDs? another yep, working on another book. Um been quietly working away at that and uh you know, I try and operate under the radar as long as I can on those on those things. That's so, true. You know. All right, well there it is. Jim Miller is his multitude of secretive projects from the deep <laughs> state the deep state. The Miller opposite estate. of what I should be saying, but there you go. <laughs> Um, All right. James Andrew Miller is a best-selling author of books on ESPN, Spattering It Live, CAA, Catch uh, Origins, his podcast, whenever it sort of breaks. It's Cadence 13, so all of us at Cadence 13 will be able to alert you to that. Follow his latest uh, offerings on Twitter at uh, at Jim Miller. And uh, Jim, as always, great to catch up with you. We will certainly do this again, but... uh, I wanted to have a conversation with you on uh, ESPN in China, and so uh, and we did that. So thank you very much uh, for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast, and we will talk soon. Thanks, Richard. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua, and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter, and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film, and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, back in the studio. My thanks, as always, to Jim Miller, um, who's been on this podcast many times, and I really enjoy speaking with him. Follow all his uh, work and and other things uh, via his uh, his Twitter feed, and he'll alert you when his new podcast and other stuff is coming out. If you like this kind of uh, conversation, and I hope you do, last couple of podcasts I think have been really, really good, uh, at least in in terms of um, just content that I think people have seemingly responded to well. The Sports Illustrated Layoff podcast, that was right before this Miller one, and that featured four Sports Illustrated staffers, Mary Agnant, Joan Neeson, Scooby Axon, Tim Rohan, who were laid off two weeks ago by Sports Illustrated, and they let you know how it was done and um, what they hope now for the future, what their thoughts are on Sports Illustrated, incredibly honest people, and I hope you check that out. Before that, Adnan Verk, who's been on this podcast many times, and ESPN's Ivan Maisel and John Dahl, the latter talking about ESPN's college football coverage. Prior to that, Jane McManus and Katie Strang. Katie Strang, one of my colleagues at The Athletic, on the nexus of sexual assault and mental health coverage and the sports media. Before that, Garrett Graff, the author of The Only Plane in the Sky, an oral history of 9-11. If you like this stuff, again, please go to the Apple Podcast page, subscribe, leave us a five-star review, and that's how the podcast will continue. Um, my thanks, as always, to Patrick Antonetti for producing this podcast. Thank you to uh, Chris Corcoran, Spencer Brown, John McDermott, Sean Cherry at Cadence 13. And we will see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.